the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions. My name is Lee Johnson. I'm here with my co-hosts, Rick Lee and Jason Reed, and our special friend up from the bayou, John Protevi. And today we are talking about political philosophy of mind. But before we get to that, let's get some drink orders and some rants or raves. Rick, I'm going to come to you first. What are you drinking? It's getting that time of year to start drinking Oktoberfest. And so I'm going to have a local brewery Metropolitan's Oktoberfest. Metropolitan, call us. <laughs> Today I am raving about Judith Butler. <laughs> So I'm sure many of you are familiar with what Ron DeSantis has been doing to the new college in Florida, basically destroying its curriculum. And a group of people have organized what they call Alt New College, which is an online system to provide the students of the new college with the curriculum that can no longer be taught there. And one of the first sessions they had was a conversation between Judith Butler and Masha Gessen about the status and future of gender studies. And I just think it's really cool that Judith Butler takes time out of their incredibly busy schedule to do something that really matters to the students of New College. And, you know, what a gift it was to those students. Jason, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about today? Well, in honor of our guests from Louisiana, I'm going to have a Cesarac. Nice. And I'm going to rave about Doppelganger by Naomi Klein. I just started this book, but so far it's really engaging. I mean, it starts out being about Naomi Klein being mistaken for Naomi Wolf, <laughs> but it gets way more interesting than that because it's really about what it means to be a critical intellectual in an age of conspiracy theories. Because one of the things that Naomi Wolf has done is taken Klein's idea of the shock doctrine of the way in which governments use shock to reassemble power and to reassemble wealth. And what happens when your idea becomes part of various online rabbit holes and how do you navigate this world. So it's a fascinating book so far. I read like 75 pages in one sitting. Mm. Wow. So John, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? Okay, well, I'm going to go old school and I'm going to have a, a Bita Amber, which is a locally brewed Louisiana beer that I have consumed for 30 years, often accompanied by a catfish po'boy, <laughs> uh, fully dressed, of course, <laughs> but I don't have that right now, so the Abita Amber will have to do. And I can't tell whether I'm ranting or raving, but I heard an excellent kind of conspiracy theory, but maybe kernel of truth about the new College of Florida, such that... They're intentionally running it into the ground because it's apparently on zillions of dollars of beautiful bayfront real estate. Wow. So if they run it into the ground, they know it could be sold off so it no longer has to be public property. And somebody's going to put some condos up there and make a gazillion dollars. It's plausible. So I guess I'm ranting about the fact that such a thing would be plausible in our society today. That's one of the saddest things I've ever heard is that we're all like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> 
Lee, what about you? What are you drinking and are you ranting or raving? Well, I'm also going to have a drink in honor of our friend from Louisiana. I'm going to have a margarita that I bought at a draft through and that I'm going to drink <laughs> in my car. <laughs> Just kidding. They're usually daiquiris in the drive through not margaritas. <laughs> Sign me up either way. <laughs> Today I'm ranting, and I think I'm the last of the three of us to finally rant about the platform formerly known as Twitter. It seems pretty inevitable, I think, at this point that Elon Musk is going to build a paywall around all of Twitter, and it just makes no sense. I mean, keep in mind that this platform was free for 17 years when it worked. And now that it's broken, we're going to pay for it. I just don't, I don't get it. It's, I don't know. I don't know if that's a rant or a rave either, honestly, John. <laughs> so Jason, I know that we've got John here to talk about the political philosophy of mind, but how did you want this conversation to go? Yeah. So at first glance, a political philosophy of mind would seem to be an oxymoron. Minds, after all, often consider to be the individual basis for decision and action, while political philosophy would demand that we think at least on some level in terms of collectivity, if not social relations. A political philosophy of mind demands overcoming the binary of individual collective, individual and society. If we consider the mind to include not only cognitive dimensions and aspects, but also, as John Protevi does, the effective basis of actions, the feelings, moods, and emotions that structure our responses, then a political philosophy of mind also crosses the divide between mind and body. Such crossings are necessary to move beyond an economy and society that increasingly frames everything in terms of purely individual and rational decisions, as neoliberal calculations subsume our economic life, and even you-do-you guidelines replace public health. Here to talk about a political philosophy of mind and why it might be necessary to think of the mind across the division of individual and society, mind and body, is John Protevi from Louisiana State University, author of such books as Political Affect and longtime friend of the show. So, recapping a little what I said in the introduction, John. I'd like to ask, first of all, you to say something about what you understand by mind and how it situates the relationship between individual and society, mind and body, thinking and feeling. Good. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, mostly I took it because that's the common discourse that's out there, philosophy of mind, going back to Gilbert Ryle, concept of mind. And so it's kind of morphed over the years into philosophical reflection on psychology, on those phenomena which are treated in scientific terms by psychology. So I was using a term that's already out there, and I wanted to inflect it with a political angle. As you say, my own personal history coming through Deleuze and Guattari was always struck by the desiring production idea that there's an immediate libidinal investment of the social field. We're already into a kind of social constructivism idea that how you're going to be feeling, what you're going to be turned on by is going to be related to the experiences of your life as they are patterned by your society. Back in the day, if you grew up in a hunting society, you'd get really turned on by the idea of going out with the boys and doing some hunting. <laughs> me? I, that never turned me on. <laughs> well. I mean, that's what listeners tune in for, is to find out what our guests are turned on. So, thanks for clarifying. 
<laughs> well, that's what libidinal investment means. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. like it was not a metaphor that Hitler got the fascists sexually aroused. Mm. It's a quote. I don't need to be quoting to listen Guattari to my interlocutors here, but yeah, that's they just say that right there. But I did go to Penn State and the first day of deer hunting season in the fall. Like half the people show up yeah. <laughs> because they grew up in Western PA. And as we know from the movie, uh, lots of people really get into deer hunting. <laughs> so that was a background for me. That crystallized a lot of things that I thought. And so when I did political affect back in 2009, I was trying to look at ways in which the cognitive science literature in principle touches on affect, but in practice, it's not as highly thematized as it could be. Another big influence on my career was meeting Francisco Varela, so getting into the inactive school in cognitive science. They are always, at least in my reading of it, big on having organisms be attracted to or repulsed by environmental factors. So they talk about salience, what jumps out of the background, as related to the norms developed by a particular organism. And valence. I mean, do you chase it or do you run away from mm. it? So they root that basic organismic and biological reality as they can. There's a kind of fun question about whether they have what you could call a biological panpsychism, but they don't necessarily go all the way to panpsychism. Much later on, then, I got turned on to Spinoza, and there's a kind of panpsychist idea there about mind and conatus everywhere in the universe, not just in organisms. So that was another kind of influence. I don't necessarily pursue that metaphysical question about where the lower limit of panpsychism is or psychism. But in the arena that has psyche, sense production, meaning production, then I think there's cognition and affect together all the time, all the way from the ground up. Now, with human beings, we're a lot more complicated than uh, amoebas, <laughs> but we still do get pushes and pulls. In fact, talking in the history of philosophy stuff, the Hobbesian influence on Spinoza's Canatus idea about you don't like something because you think it's good, but you think it's good because you like it. I'm trying to remember my formula here. <laughs> That's always attracted me and pushed me towards that position. So I think I have a formula here that once you're into that, if you're going to have a political philosophy of mind, you want to avoid methodological individualism. You can't just have society be an additive collection or an additive aggregate of individuals. Well, let me back up a little bit. One of the tenets, I think, of neoliberal and methodological individualism is that desire formation is off limits. Yeah. It's condescending. It's freedom infringing to actually ask why people have the desires they have. What you have to do is make it the case that they have the ability to pursue those desires. So, John, not all of our listeners have PhDs or even bachelor's <laughs> degree in philosophy. Sure. So, for example, listener Dave, <laughs> he often needs things explained. So I just wanted to mention that panpsychism, which you talked about, comes from the term psyche, psyche, which is the Greek term for something like mind or soul. And then pan means everything has such a thing. And so panpsychism yep. is the idea that everything has mind or soul. Yeah, and if I could also just jump in with a helpful point for Rick's brother-in-law, Dave. John is really bringing us a novel proposition here that we can talk about a political philosophy of mind. Philosophy of mind is its own subfield within philosophy, and there are many, many different sub-subfields in that. But 
strangely, I think, there's not been a subfield of the subfield philosophy of mind that's called political philosophy of mind. So if I could, before you go on, John, just ask you if you don't mind, this is a little bit of an unfair question, but just try to explain for the novice why you think that there hasn't been a political philosophy of mind yet? Well, there has been, I can name some names, Sean Gallagher at the University of Memphis, Jan Sleby in Berlin, and then we have two American philosophers, Michelle Maizy and Robert Hanna, who wrote a book called The Mind-Body Politic from 2019, and they explicitly used the term. So it's certainly not the case that I'm the only one who uses the term. But these are all relatively recent, right? Oh, yes, for sure. 2009, when I wrote Political Affect, the term wasn't in the air. Right. I think it's actually Jan Slaby who coined the term in a piece from 2016. So definitely very recent. Yeah, 2016 in the field of philosophy is yesterday. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or a minute ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah so uh, for sure, I listen to WIP, Philadelphia Sports Radio, all the time. And many Daves will call in <laughs> and to the show. So philosophy of mind, it tended to be, at least in my reading, an individualist approach to psychology, in which some of the biggest concerns would be whether perception is cognitively influenced. The technical term people use is cognitive penetration. We have a common saying, seeing is believing, but you can actually kind of turn that around and saying believing is seeing. Mm. So you only actually physically, literally see things that you're primed to see, that you've had experience in seeing, so on and so forth. And certainly in an extended metaphoric sense, people can be said to not see exploitation when somebody else can't see anything but exploitation. So someone might see a free contract to work at McDonald's for whatever minimum wage in that society is, and other people might see exploitation. So it's a kind of extended sense. But there's lots of ways in which just literal sight can be primed by cognition and stuff like that. So that was the classic kind of thing, tended to be individualistic, tended to be oriented to adults, tended to be oriented to abled people, Mm -hmm. tended to be oriented to men. Those orientations were sub rosa, or sotto voce, or unstated. So it's kind of classic way in which if you don't state the specific social position of a thing and you just talk about the human subject, you're actually going to be talking about able-bodied, white, male, straight, middle class, etc., etc. One of the classic examples that got me away from that would be Iris Marion Young's Throwing Like a Girl, Mm. where she showed that this is a different, it's not really philosophy of mine, but in Merleau-Ponty's analyses are all about the competence of a body subject. So my bodily capacities open up the world for me such that things appear to me as what I can manipulate. And she wanted to say, okay, that's fine. But in certain circumstances, my bodily training doesn't allow me to have access to the world Mm. as what I can manipulate. Rather, the world shows up to me as a threatening, encroaching, dangerous place. That we might be able to map the gendered subjectivation practices onto the human subject and see a difference in their corporeal training might lead to a difference in their experience. So she uses the example of throwing like a girl, where you get stereotypically in the 70s, I guess, when she was writing it, 
you could throw the ball. If you're throwing with your right hand, your right foot would be forward. And you throw it from the elbow down, but you don't twist your body. You don't use your hips. You don't step into the ball or anything like that. That's throwing like a girl. And then boys, right, because they grew up playing baseball, will balance on their back foot. They'll twist their hips to the side. And when they launch their body, they're launching their entire body into it and twisting and turning and developing a lot of force. But there's nothing anatomical about those throwing styles. It's just that one gets practice and gets taught and the other one doesn't. Now, that kind of thing has been inscribed in the phenomenology tradition, the study of experience, as a critical phenomenology. It's a big book called 50 Questions for Critical Phenomenology. 50 Concepts, John. 50 Concepts, sorry. Gail Weiss and Murphy and Gail Solomon are the editors there. And the piece goes back to W.E.B. Du Bois, the notion of double consciousness, and to Simone de Beauvoir, the gendered subjectivity through body practices. You could extend it as far back as Mary Wollstonecraft, who talked a lot about women's dress, whether girls could play and run or not, as forming a body subjectivity for girls. So Wollstonecraft, all the way back at the turn of the 19th century, could be inscribed in this tradition of looking at gendered practices as forming a capable body subject that opens up the world for them. So that's one of the I wouldn't say fault lines, but one of the dividing lines, I guess you would say, is in philosophy of mind, you do have a position that comes from analytic philosophy, mostly coming through a man named Gilbert Ryle, who in 1950 had a book called The Concept of Mind. Really wonderful stuff. He thematized the difference between knowing that and knowing how, ghost in the machine, lots of philosophical notions come out of that book. So it's a great tradition. Then there are attempts to bring in the phenomenological tradition, which is this patterned study of experience, going back to Edmund Husserl, Heidegger, Merleau-Ponty. So these are some names of people who have studied experience from the position of what's called phenomenology. And some people in philosophy of mind try to take advantage of phenomenological positions. Others stick more straightforwardly with their analytic tradition. But it's opening up a lot more crosstalk across the analytic and continental philosophy divide in the last 15 years or so. And I think the new generation doesn't pay that much attention. So political philosophy of mind seems to, on the one hand, as you mentioned, it involves philosophy of mind engaging with politics. But it also seemed that, on the other hand, political philosophers on some level have been unwilling to take up some of these questions around mind. Like you said early on, you were talking about neoliberalism specifically, but I think it goes beyond that, a reluctance to talk about desire formation ingrained, not just in neoliberal thought, but in certain ways of thinking about democracy, right? People want what they want, no discussion of where desires come from and what shapes them. So I guess I'm wondering if you could say something about the other side, this thing you've created, not created, but this thing you're part of, this new way of thinking, political philosophy of mind, not just the reluctance of philosophy of mind to think about politics, but the reluctance of political thought to engage with mind in the broad sense you're using it as not just thinking about things, but the shape and formation of desires, habits, and ultimately subjectivity. That's a wonderful question, Jason. And I do think that there are resources within just the Western social contract tradition, which do talk about desires. Hobbes, we mentioned Hobbes. Yeah. He 
does an analysis and, you know, fear, glory, and I hesitate to do this in front of Rick, but <laughs> desires for security are leading you in this direction or another direction. Certainly that, and then we also mentioned Spinoza about affect. You could say that Kant gets to the point where he thinks that content full visions of the good life are going to be leading to such irreconcilable conflicts that to be political or ethical, we need to empty that out and just have a formal test to see how far can we allow individual liberties that doesn't impinge on the liberties of others. So the kind of formal test of consistency such that you can maximize liberty without interfering on the liberty of others does seem to take away from political philosophy that discussion of the content-laden moral decisions mm-hmm. in there and leave it as a kind of formal notion whereby the job of a society is just to produce a framework within which individual desires, whatever they are, can be managed to the extent that they don't damage the ability of others to form their vision of the good life would not call myself a political philosopher, but I do have that sense of Kant's intervention. And from there, what we'll know is the liberal tradition does want to acknowledge the multiplicity of visions of the good life and as much as possible have a framework for allowing those things to work themselves out. There's always a you know minority tradition. So there are people who want to talk about desire formation, I think. Certainly, Marx is going to want to say that desires can be traced in a large sense to social positions, such that you're going to get some formations along that way. And then Nietzsche, Freud, we have this hermeneutics of suspicion idea where they don't want to take desire formation for granted. And we certainly want to look into how those things are generated. And then I think in the 20th century, as we move into specifically mass media culture, People want to look at the impact of advertising and so on and so forth. So that's an explicitly an attempt to look at desire generation. John, can I just pull on one thread that runs through both Jason's question and what you've been saying? And just to emphasize it for a moment, because it seems to me that an awful lot of our political understanding, let's say, in Western liberal democracies is either that my desires are transparent to me, that I understand them. And this seems to go back to the emphasis on questions of knowledge, including questions of perception, you know, how things are perceived and therefore known. And so I know my desires and I know them better than you do. So back off, don't question my desires because they're transparent to me. Or, and maybe this is related, that I, as an individual, have the right to my desires, and the right to having my desires and my right to desire what I want seems to form the basis of a lot of our political thinking. Either one of those pictures of the mind in relating our capacities for knowledge to emotions or rights, which may be related to the first, both of these can only conceive of politics as, as you put it, and I love this word, managing the relation between individual desires, rather than talking about desires we have in common, interests we have in common, forms of solidarity we already have. All of this seems impossible given this political way in which we talk that's based on a picture of the mind that it seems to me you want to challenge. That's great. I sometimes think 
precisely about whether you know your own desires, that other people can read you a lot better than you can read yourself in many ways. <laughs> yeah, so we've so all true. had the experience where one of your friends wants to date somebody and you know it's going to be a disaster <laughs> and they can't see it. And you keep saying it's staring you in the face and they cannot see it. So there is a way in which having moral and political positions being laid out in a discussion group can provide a check on my own ignorance of my desires, hmm. or my own, not necessarily ignorance of my desires, ignorance of the consequences of my desires. Yeah. So every time I look at Jason here, I think about Spinoza. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> As do we all. <laughs> but, I mean, the third form of knowledge is how my individual essence is going to play a role in the feelings that I get in encountering other people. But most people can't get there. Most people have a kind of general human psychology sense that, well, this person's pushing my buttons, but I have kind of the same buttons as everybody else. So I know that I'm getting mad. I think, you know, I'm kind of responsible for a little bit of it, but that's about the extent of it. And other people just don't have any self-knowledge and they just get their buttons pushed all the time. We love that you join us here at the hotel bar for our boozy, brain-powered podcast. But we get a little tired of talking amongst ourselves here in a virtual bar. So if you'd like to pull up a stool beside us and also beside other listeners in our Hotel Bar Sessions community, then follow us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. There you can also find the Twitter handles of all three of us co-hosts. For our more... <coughs> senior listeners we're also on facebook all of our episodes are on youtube and from time to time we that is lee by the way even make an appearance on tiktok by the way you could go old school and email us at any time at hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our interactive page at hotelbarpodcast.com we have a designated reader for those messages who is mostly only a little tipsy who knows, your suggestion could help keep intellectual insights on tap and on the air. Part of the reason we had John on the show is we want to talk about your specific work using the political philosophy of mind to talk about COVID and the choices people made or were forced to make around COVID. I want to ask first about the use of a case study to get at the way in which, as you said, not everyone has the same set of buttons. Our buttons are themselves historically produced by our situation. Yeah, so I came upon the case study method way back in 2005, when in the spring, the Terry Schiavo case happened, and then in the fall, Hurricane Katrina. I had done a somewhat shorter case study on Columbine. So it's a way in which, by looking at a particular incident, you can pull out different threads, because as the old saying goes, reality does not fall upon the lines of university academic departments. <laughs> so to understand Katrina, you have to understand history and geography and psychology and race and meteorology, this, that, and the other thing. So the case study was something that when something grabs me, I want to try to pull out as many threads as I can, looking for the ways in which multiple dimensions crystallize, I use that metaphor, to produce a particular incident. 
So you wrote about Shanetta White Ballard, who was a nurse in a senior residential facility who died from COVID in May 2020. Correct. She was African-American. She Mm -hmm. had, well, in the parlance of COVID, we would call pre-existing conditions or comorbidities. Mm -hmm. What was striking about this particular case study for you? It was just a very well-written local newspaper article, which was heartbreaking. May of 2020, school was over, uh, facing a summer of isolation. I was feeling a little down anyway, and this it just knocked me over reading the thing in the morning. The descriptions were of her kind and loving heart, her position as the major breadwinner in the family. Her friends testified that she really cared for her patients, but was worried about her condition. And she had economic realities, and I just thought that that really crystallized a lot of the discourse that we had around racial discrepancies in COVID deaths, economic discrepancies, and this and that. And so it was just a powerful emotional pull that I felt in reading this story. It was extremely well done from a technical local journalism perspective. I thought the reporter dug into things with a respectful distance, and yet wanted to show people a face behind the statistics, as uh, people say. So that was the, the trigger for me. What I think is most striking about your use of case studies is that most of us in philosophy don't normally rely on case studies. And I think there's a general bias against it because the case study runs the risk of being anecdotal And how could we ever get to some kind of universal truth on the basis of a case study? And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why it is you think this method is important and how it avoids or runs right into the face of those kinds of criticisms that one finds in philosophy. I think we have some methodological toolkits here. So a big one is thought experiments. Mm -hmm. So we're really good at coming up with thought experiments. And that is usually seen as someone proposes something which does fit a universal or wide-ranging law or generality. And we put our brains to thinking, well, can I find a hole in that picture such that the necessary and sufficient conditions don't always hold? Can I find an exception to that generalization? Can I show that there's bad consequences if we follow it, so on and so forth? So that's a very philosophical thing to do. Find a counterexample or a thought experiment that drives a counterexample such that the necessary and sufficient conditions proposed in this proposition don't really hold or they hold with socially unacceptable implications. Right. So we have trolley problems, we have swamp man, and there's a whole bestiary. <laughs> Twin Earth, what do we have? We have zombies. Brains uh, and bats. <laughs> yeah, we were really good at that kind of thing. So, I mean, is it the case that I want to give a universal law Or do I want to reveal the aspects of the reality that I'm living in right now? And that would come back to our ideal theory versus real theory thing. You know, I'm not sure I can produce exceptionless necessary and sufficient conditions for denouncing the American treatment of COVID. But I think if we dig into this case, we can see, and through my research, I think I showed that if you think about your options... You can save yourself from the real-life feedback of actually trying these out trial and error. You can pull back 
and think, what if I did this? And what if I did that? And that would save me from actually trying this because trial and error could be costly. Mm. But there's actually a physiological and psychological wear and tear on just thinking about your options when you're in a no-win situation. Then you're just caught in a loop. Thinking is actually physiologically wearing and tearing in the following sense, in particular ways in which our brain chemistry works. We kind of lower the thresholds at which we can trigger thought patterns. And you need to do that by cortisol and just using some terms as placeholders. But cortisol is in there, the famous stress hormone. So I've got all the details worked out in the paper, but that's the general sense of it. So I think what I did reveal in this paper is maybe not universal law, but I did reveal the no-win situation that this person faced and many people do face. Yeah, I want to just, one, dig into the details of this case study, but also try to circle back to, oh God, did I just say circle back? Whatever. (laughs) Circle back to how this is connected to the political philosophy of mind. So one of the things that you say is a kind of key move in your essay is that it links the Bayesian brain, the brain that calculates risks and rewards, the selfish brain, the brain that wants to actualize desires, I suppose, and the... No, i sorry to interrupt. That's okay. But I would think in this case, the selfish brain means the energy consumption part of the body that requires lots of oxygen and lots of calories, and it will impose costs on the rest of the body so it can gather some more information. That's the sense that selfish means it's an energy sink, the brain is. All right. That's a really helpful clarification for me. So the Bayesian brain, the selfish brain, and then the stressed body, which I don't think needs explanation. So one of the things that we see in this case study is that Shanetta White-Ballard has some comorbidities. She's what at the time we called an essential worker. She's a nurse in an assisted living facility. She has to calculate the risks of her getting COVID with the risks of not having an income and at the same time is having to think about these conflicting risks and that's stressing her mind out and her body itself is stressed because of her pre-existing conditions. And so How is it that this picture of this person made it clear that whatever it is that philosophy of mind has been doing up to this point, it has not paid attention to people like this enough? Because what people like this show us is how a political philosophy of mind could be revealing. I think that a lot of the problems that are addressed in philosophy of mind tend not to have too many political implications. Once in a while it touches on it, but some of them are like, there's a very famous example in the perception literature about object blindness or something. So if you have a group of people playing basketball in front of an elevator, they're throwing a Nerf ball around and somebody in a gorilla outfit walks in the background, like 50% of the people will not see the gorilla because (laughs) they're looking at the basketball. We'll put a link to that video in the show notes. I mean, now everyone's going to know to look for the gorilla, but <laughs> But that's a classic thing, and it's great. It's a fascinating thing, and it shows, if you want to establish the principle, that priming is an important thing for perception. Our minds and brains are not cameras, but they're active exploration devices of our environment. But they can only be actively exploring an environment that's meaningful to you. So if I tell you, track this basketball, 
then you're going to do that. So it's a great example. But there's a field of political problems that also require people to solve problems that reveal the subjectivation in this particular case as a caring person. Following up on Arlie Hochschild Russell and the whole affective labor thing, there's a way in which people can come to see themselves as drawn to the caring professions because I'm a caring person. Although you could say it's the actual working in the caring profession that makes you think of yourself as a caring person. Yeah. But nonetheless, yeah. that sets up a real shame opportunity. So if I don't go to work because I'm worried about getting sick, that would be shameful, right? Because what about these people in the nursing home who have been depending on me for their loving care for years now? So that's a real emotional, affective, politically inflected problem that I wanted to get into. Now, I can't mind read Ms. White Ballard, but I can look at the testimonies that were recorded in the original article, which do testify to those attributes of her. Yeah. So you say you can't mind read, but what about your own mind? I mean, what about you as a white male academic using this as a case study? I really struggled with that. I was able to articulate some of my worry after reading a book by Lindsay Stewart called The Politics of Black Joy, where she thematizes the way in which an abolitionist or neo-abolitionist focus on black pain was motivating for people to get them engaged because wanting to relieve suffering, powerfully important political position. Stewart says, however, if you then move to saying, Oh, well, black people have joy. They sing and dance and stuff like that. They resist. And in their resistance, one of their forms of resisting is still to have joy in their life. That risks, Stuart lays out, the happy black person who only gets involved with politics because, you know, outside agitators are coming in and full in their minds with highfalutin ideas. So she lays out this thing. You can't just focus on black pain. That's terrible. It's objectifying this and that. What about black joy? But you better not do black joy in terms of singing and dancing on Saturday night as the only way in which mm-hmm. black joy comes out. So that positioning of me as a guy, you know, writing about this, because it's the most personal case study I've done. I just thought that by focusing on the loving and caring aspects of her personality and the tragedy of those being involved in the double bind that she found herself in, emphasize the humanity of her in my portrayal of the case. And at the end of the day, I thought it outweighed the dangers of a neo-abolitionist sole focus on black pain. Uh, so Lindsay Stewart, Politics of Black Joy. Highly recommend it. Also, Lindsay, come on our podcast. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Her husband plays in my poker game, so I'm ah. You're kidding. <laughs> the message is going to get there. <laughs> John, I mean, in a way, to call it a case study is to dehumanize what, in fact, your actual analysis makes much more human. But to go back to your basketball gorilla example, in a sense, everyone is concentrating on the basketball and therefore they don't see, they can't see They shouldn't see the gorilla because if they do, they're not playing basketball. But in that example, all of them have chosen to play basketball and we assume they're doing it for fun and so on. And I think what you're trying to point out with this case study is that the investments that people have in their world, the psychic and affective investments, are not always ones that people decide to get into. 
And I think one of the ways to look at this is that healthcare in general, not doctors, but almost everyone else in the healthcare industry, is incredibly gendered and incredibly raced. And your use of the case study is a way to bring the affective dimensions together with the perceptual fields available to people, the affective fields available to people, and even the possibilities of desire available to people are not the individual's free choice. the hotel bar, Rick, Jason, and I like to pour philosophy straight into your ears. We're an independent and ad-free podcast, and we'd like to keep it that way. But the only way we can do that is with listener support. You can help us defray some of our production costs by signing up to support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. There are several levels of monthly donations there that you can sign up for, and every one of them helps us keep raising our glasses to deep conversations. If you'd prefer to make a one-time donation or several one-time donations, just visit our website at hotelbarpodcast.com where you can find links to support the podcast through Venmo, PayPal, or Cash App, and you can keep enjoying our tipsy philosophy and sobering insights. So, John, I really appreciate your trying to think through what it means to talk about politics in someone else's mind from considering the politics of your own mind and your own subject position. One of the things that I find very striking is that there is a kind of tendency that, you know, we should never speak of someone else's desires or situation, right? Especially once that crosses lines of race, class, gender, etc., to sort of treat everyone as absolutely singular in their own perspective. And I think one of the things that I find troubling about that is that takes us back to a kind of default position that we're, I think, trying to avoid, which is just taking people's desires and decisions as given. And it makes it impossible to speak about why people are doing what they're doing. Excellent. COVID is a brilliant example of this because I think COVID has continued to be a forced choice for so many people. I mean, at every different stage, the initial stage of people returning to work, but also even as people get rid of precautions, people find themselves doing things that from the outside look like, hey, everyone has decided that they're cool with this now. But what's really going on, I think, is a lot of forced choices where people are responding to binds and situations that are not necessarily immediately apparent. And unless we make those visible, we're going to go back to a default position of hey, who's to say, you know, it's sort of like the you do you, the the New York Metropolitan Subway Authority did, I can't remember when, like a year ago, did this sign when they were getting rid of masking where they showed like, you could wear your mask over your nose or just over your (laughs) mouth or you wear it over your eyes. Like, haha, you do you. Like, you know, this everyone gets to do what they want became kind of the default position. You know, it's a politics of public health, which refuses to acknowledge the public nature of public health. Yeah, I think in that particular case, they're probably trying to protect against people who were wearing masks from being harassed. 
Right. So that was the message there. It wasn't really encouraging mask wearing, but it was. Saying. So it's a great question. I did write an essay in a 2013 book called The Granularity Problem and exactly tries to face that. You do have to be able to say something that reaches some trans individual, to use a term, or categories that are greater than just the individual subject position. Because otherwise you get a long string of, as a 68-year-old white male middle-class professor whose income is X, who's a fan of the Philadelphia 76ers, who went to Catholic school until he was, you know, I can, I can go on and on, right? You can't have that. On the other hand, I should acknowledge in some particular circumstances I am white, mm -hmm. right? You can't have just the unmarked subject because, as we know, that's going to be filled in surreptitiously by majoritarian subject positions. Nor can you have the extreme idiosyncrasy of everyone has their subject position and you can't tell me what to think or anything like that. So we do know that there are discrepancies along racial lines in the United States with regard to COVID infection rates, which crisscross employment opportunities, age, and this and that. So... I tried to pitch it at that level. So in a sense, I am using Ms. White Ballard as a representative for African-American women in caring professions classified as essential workers. Those are categories that, as we know, had disparate impacts from other social categories and that, that deserves to be analyzed. So you find your categories, which have to be above the idiosyncratic singular but nonetheless can't go all the way to the top of, well, she's a human being. Right. You know. Yeah, granularity. I think it's a very uh, difficult question. I mean, I guess I'm trying to think the emergent trans individual aspects of it and just try and point out that, you know, it's not true that any two individuals, especially any two individuals within the same historical moment are absolutely incomparable with each other, right? That we all, to some extent, participate in the same structures and relations, even if they affect us in different ways because of different aspects of our subject position. And this goes into the impersonal, the structural dimension of mind as we're talking about it, right? The mind isn't just something that's located inside the gray matter of my head. It also involves the structural conditions of the decisions and actions we make that aren't located within us as individuals. I've been reading a lot of anthropology lately to write a book that I did a couple of years ago. But in non-market societies, people don't calculate market prices and risks and rewards the way that we do. Now, yeah. mm -hmm. they have to deal with reality. And there's going to be a kind of risk and reward thing if me and my friends split off from the band and we go down the road and try to join another band, is that really going to work out or not? So I'm dealing with reality there. But I'm trying mm -hmm. to hit my price point right. <laughs> as to what my, the return on investment of this particular move. Am I going to get a better labor market on the next uh, thing down the road? So it's really important for us to understand in decision theory terms or rational choice theory terms how people do make those calculations today. I'm not denying that, you know, mm. microeconomics should be studied. Of course, <laughs> you have to be able to calculate returns on investment. We're all neoliberal self-entrepreneurs. I completely believe that. But that's not a human subjectivity. That'd be different in different societies. Everybody deals with reality. They don't necessarily deal with reality in terms of investment and return. So, you know, we are in a market society. Historically, our social safety net has been frayed. 
One of the best books I've read in many years is Melinda Cooper's Family mm. Values, which shows the way in which the family becomes the default setting for, she doesn't use the term social reproduction, we would ordinarily call for that. So then we talk about family breadwinners, and that's one of the positions that Ms. White Ballard found herself in as the main breadwinner for her family. Her husband did have a job, but I don't think it was as secure as her job. So that does relate to, as you say, these impersonal structures that we all have to deal with. But to just come back to my position, I could work from home. I sat in this chair and earned an entire year's worth of salary mm -hmm. talking into a screen to college students. So my COVID risk was really low. I could afford N95 masks. Right. I still have about 100 of them somewhere. <laughs> so just as you hesitate to talk about Hobbes in front of me, I hate to talk about Deleuze in front of you. <laughs> but it seems to me that really the question that Jason has been asking has to do with both the nature of the individual versus something like structure but then also the relation between the two. You lay out in the essay, following Deleuze, I think, pretty faithfully, a notion in which the individual isn't something that is independent of various structures. So in a sense, we could think of the individual as different ways in which various structures meet at a certain point nor is the individual just the structures. Mm -hmm. And yes. so there's an interesting way to think about the relation between structure and individual in which neither is prior to the other, nor does either exist without the other. I do try to build in as kind of historical thing. I'm always talking about subjectivation practices. So I wasn't born a professor. I became a professor. And so we had these ways in which you have to trace out opportunity afforded me by my subject position that enabled me to go to graduate school and become what I became. I think you do have to look at the timescales in which those things change. So we have a lifespan way in which there are certain processes which take six years or eight years or however long it takes to get a PhD and another 10 years to get a job, etc., <laughs> etc. Et and you become formed as a subject throughout those long periods of time. However, the university profession that I got into in you know 1990 is not what I'm living in right now. Social processes change at slower scales. The pace at which those structures change also has to be taken into account. Sometimes they're longer and slower, and sometimes they're really fast. And people who spent 40 years subjectivizing themselves as a particular formation get caught by the speed at which the university is changing. But also there's no such thing as the university. We have all sorts of different ones. Reading about West Virginia in the past two weeks or so, that would be a case study. <laughs> if you get to see the way in which administrators can come in and take over a university like that. I think LSU is kind of protected in that regard. Hmm. But all of us as professors are now having to learn more about budgets than we thought we ever would have had to back yeah, in graduate school. For sure. You know, it's like, oh, that's what the administrators do. But you can't trust them. <laughs> so now we have to learn. So that kind of discrepancy between the pace at which structures change and individuation processes change, I think, is an important thing. And it is correct. You don't want to reify the university system. It is made up by all of our choices over time. On the other hand, we're formed as university people by going through our processes. So we've got top-down and bottom-up, and they don't always move at the same scales. 
And that's something we really need to take into account. Plus, we're always subjected to, to use the double term of subject, we're subjected to different ways of becoming a person or becoming a subject. But there's many of those different ways. I subjected as a man, as a Philly sports fan, as a Catholic, probably go through my whole list of those things. And so there is a way in which I'm uniquely situated, but that's only interesting to the extent that, you know, I talk to other Philly sports fans. <laughs> I use that example advisedly because there's a huge politics of being a Philadelphia sports fan. For sure. True that. <laughs> Where are we going to build a stadium? Should we have a black coach or a white coach? Should we have a black quarterback? There's also the perennial question, how much snow should I pack around this battery before I <laughs> <laughs> How many lozenges should I have so I can boo loudly? <laughs> So talking about desires, our bartender desires to go home, and so she has <laughs> issued last call, and I desire to not be on her bad side. <laughs> so before we leave, John, I was wondering, do you have any last thoughts you want to leave us with about the political philosophy of mind? Well, I certainly want to first thank you guys for inviting me and for a nice conversation one that could be inscribed in a series of conversations we have actually had in real conference <laughs> hotel bars. And I hope that we will resume those in the future. But I want to make clear that I'm in a field of people who are working towards expanding the political philosophy of mind. I'm not the only one here. I build on and I have conversations with other folks. We didn't really talk about this, but it's important to say that a political philosophy of mind should not be reductionist down to just neurons firing. That's an important thing, and my neurons are firing right now. <laughs> and it would be good to know exactly what the chemicals are that are speeding up or slowing down my neuron firing. There's nothing wrong with that. It should not be the only thing we talk about. Mm -hmm. We can't also think about political philosophy of mind. We can't individualize things so that society is just an aggregate of individuals and we're bumping into each other. And the job of the political system is to make sure that we don't hurt each other when we bump into each other. Nor can we just have a kind of structuralist deduction whereby I will read off your demographics and then I will tell you what the probability is of you thinking in a particular way. You can kind of do that to a certain extent if you have a thousand people. Right? You can do the Gallup poll for the whole nation with 1,500 people. But I can't do it for any particular individual person. So there's a way in which you have to judge the granularity of your analyses. That's so great, John. And I mean, it's been an absolute privilege to have you here talk with us today. I hope you'll come back at some point. One of us has got to call a cab, and I don't trust a Philly fan to call a cab. John's going to be climbing a pole probably. But. <laughs> I, I, I got it. Thanks so much, John. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks so Bye, much. Bye, guys. We'll see you Thank soon. you. Take care. Thank you.